listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the fields of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Calling into the show today, we have James S. Gordon, MD. He is the author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. He is a Harvard-educated psychiatrist and a world-renowned expert in using mind-body medicine to heal depression, anxiety, and psychological trauma. Dr. Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. Good to be here. Well, we really appreciate having you. So let's kind of start, you know, with the basics. What exactly is trauma? I think people are familiar with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, but what is a good working definition of trauma? Well, the good working definition really is the Greek word for trauma, which means injury. It's injury to the body, mind, spirit, to our social life. And I think the important thing to understand about trauma is that it comes to all of us. It's not just restricted to people diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder who've been through a war or been brutalized or raped or lived in horribly abusive families. It's a part of life, and it may come to us when we're young our parents are somewhat abusive or neglectful or if we're discriminated against or if we're living in a violent or poverty-stricken situation, it is likely to come to us as we grow older and we deal with real distress of losses of relationships or disappointments in jobs or physical illnesses or the death of parents. And it will definitely come if we're lucky enough to grow old and be frail and have to face the loss of people we love and our own deaths. So trauma is a part of life. It's interesting that you phrase it that way. Trauma is a part of life because I, I think that many people spend their lives trying to avoid a trauma. You gave some examples of things that are understandably traumatic. And then you gave some examples of things that people are like, well, that's just part of life. So therefore it can't cause trauma. Can you talk a little bit about sort of like the trauma scale, right? Because I think the average person is thinking, well, if trauma is part of life, therefore it's no big deal. Well, hopefully life is a big deal. So so things, I think that's really where we have to start. And that's really what is part of what enables us to move through trauma. We need to value our lives. And so when something comes into our life that is, you know, extremely distressing. It could be the loss of a relationship. It could be a divorce. More than half of American marriages end in divorce. I've never seen a divorce that wasn't traumatic. I think we have to appreciate the fact that these are injuries to us, that they distress us. They throw our lives into chaos. They sometimes stop us in our tracks. And this is real. This doesn't mean indulging in it and, you know, kind of continually pitying ourselves means being realistic about the fact that we do experience this kind of suffering, this kind of pain. And if we can learn how to deal with it and move through it, we can also learn from it and grow through it. It's a really valuable, although not a pleasant part of life. It's not something that I would necessarily invite, but it's something that's going to come to us. And it's an opportunity as well as a calamity. And I think maybe a larger point that you have, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that just because there are worse traumas doesn't mean that what you're going through isn't real and damaging and persistent and needing to be addressed. Absolutely. I think this is absolutely crucial. And I'm glad you made that point because we often feel, 
oh, what I've gone through is not as bad as what the other person has gone through, and I really shouldn't be so focused on it. I was just with a group of military veterans uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and you know, some of them had obvious traumas. They'd lost legs, you know, they'd had traumatic brain injury, and others were dealing with the sort of ordinary challenges of life, you know, dealing with relationships and whether or not they were going to be able to make enough money to send their kids to college and worried about tight economic circumstances. And what I was struck by is the level of mutual understanding and compassion. And that's what we need to cultivate rather than competitiveness, whose trauma is bigger. If mine is bigger, then I deserve more time and more space. And if mine is less, well, I really shouldn't talk about it. It's more like we all are going to go through difficult times. And we are very much alike in that way. All humans are going to experience trauma. And if we acknowledge that and accept it, it gives us more compassion, not only for other people, but also for ourselves. And that's really what, what this life is about. Trauma is a teacher, ultimately. To learn, If we can learn the lessons, we can grow through it. And it is not helpful to be comparing one person's trauma to another person's trauma. Obviously, I mean, I've worked with people who've lost quite literally 20, 25 members of their families during the war. And I've worked with people who are struggling with more ordinary problems like divorce and the illness of a child, serious illness of a child. But I think the idea is to have compassion for all of those kinds of suffering when they occur to others and also when they occur to ourselves. And that's the way we can begin to move through them. If we're busy comparing, we're never going to get anywhere. I really like what you said there. I, I tend to call that the suffering Olympics and nobody really wins when you're comparing yourself to others because the things that we go through are very real and meaningful and disrupt our lives. And finding out what disrupts other people's lives isn't necessarily the best path forward. But one of the things that you said is you said that trauma is an opportunity, I believe were your exact words. Now, most people think of trauma as just a disaster, but I know that through your work, you feel that it can also be an opportunity. Can you please explain why and how? Sure. The why first, first of all, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by seeing it as an opportunity, by seeing it as something from which we can learn and not an unmitigated disaster. That's the beginning of it. And how, the first step is to begin to balance the disorder that comes to our bodies and to our minds. So I teach a very simple form of concentrated meditation, just breathing slowly and deeply in through the nose, out through the mouth with the belly soft and relaxed. What that does is it quiets the agitation that comes after trauma. It helps to relax the muscles that get tense because when we're traumatized, we go, whether it's the cause of psychological or physical or a social rejection, we go into a kind of fight or flight response, just as if there were a predator, just as if there were, you know, we were in the jungle and a lion were chasing us. Our body reacts the same way. And big muscles get tense, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our digestive system doesn't work well. The centers of the brain that are responsible for fear and anger are firing like crazy. And we're suppressing centers in the brain that are responsible for self-awareness and thoughtful decision-making and compassion. If we breathe slowly and deeply, it is very simple, not always easy, but if we can do this, we activate the vagus nerve 
which balances out the fight or flight response, quiets the body, slows heart rate, lowers blood pressure, calms the mind, helps us to focus, makes it easier to connect with other people and have compassion for them. It's a very simple, very basic technique that lays the groundwork for all the other techniques that can help us move through and learn from trauma. First, we need to contend with the disruption that trauma has caused. This kind of soft belly breathing is fundamental. Another technique that is also crucial that is less well studied, but I would say equally important, is the use of what can be called expressive meditations. Soft belly breathing is a concentrative meditation. All the world's religious traditions have concentrative meditations. In Western religions, repetitive prayers can be seen as concentrative meditations. We're focusing on a sound or focusing on an image. Expressive meditations are meditations that work with the body, moving very fast, breathing fast, whirling, jumping up and down, shaking and dancing. These are the oldest forms of meditation on the planet. And they're very helpful. They're very helpful with fight or flight when we're tense and agitated and anxious and angry. And they're also very especially helpful when we feel frozen. Because sometimes when trauma is both overwhelming and inescapable, we just shut down. Our whole body closes down. We may go limp. We may collapse to the ground. We feel distant from our body. Now, both fight or flight and this freeze response can be life-saving. If you think about an animal running away from a predator, of course, fight or flight can save the animal's life. But freezing can also save an animal's life. If you think about a, uh, your pet cat catching a mouse, the mouse goes limp and the cat's jaws. And sometimes, if the cat doesn't chomp down too much on the mouse, she loses interest in the mouse. Puts the mouse down, mouse shakes herself off, and runs off to the mouse hole. The freeze response has come, saved the mouse's life, and has gone. The problem for humans is that we continue in fight or flight, and we continue in freeze response long after the traumatic event is over. Soft belly breathing balances out fight or flight. These active, expressive meditations help to free us from the freezing response that we've been. Just yesterday, I'm thinking about these vets that I was with. There was a guy there who'd been a Marine. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder ever since a combat incident where he witnessed two young boys who were shot and who were bleeding to death, and he couldn't do anything. He was frozen. He couldn't even do basic first aid, and he was totally shut down and couldn't connect with other people and felt his body all tight and tense. We did some shaking and dancing and he began to open up. He began to feel the feelings coming back into his body. So these are two ways, quieting fight or flight, breaking up the tension and the withdrawal of the freeze response. These are fundamental processes that make it possible for us to use all the dozens of other self-care approaches and the other therapies that may help us move through whatever trauma we've experienced. We'll be right back after these messages. Want real, no boundaries talk about mental health issues from those who live it? 
Listen to the Not Crazy podcast, co-hosted by a lady with depression and a guy with bipolar. Visit psychcentral.com slash not crazy or subscribe to Not Crazy on your favorite podcast player. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. And we're back discussing trauma with Dr. James S. Gordon. In addition to paying attention to nature and animals, you also talk about how laughter is an important part of trauma healing. Sure. I like this because I I love humor, I love laughing, and I I kind of feel like I understand why this would be helpful. But I think that maybe the average person is like, wait, so when I'm traumatized, you want me to laugh? It, It also seems counterintuitive. Absolutely. And that's what people say. And I've done this laughter meditation with refugees. I've done it with people who've lost family members. I've also done it in people who are just dealing with more ordinary kinds of trauma. And often they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, okay, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm not. How about doing it? Just give me three minutes. Give laughter three minutes. And what happens is, and I see this again and again, that the laughter, if you laugh with a ha 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 total belly laugh, forcing it at first, it all of a sudden, within a minute or two, your body begins to loosen up. Some energy comes back, a little feeling of freedom. And sometimes that laughter that was forced at first becomes spontaneous. And now there's actually research showing that laughter not only relaxes the muscles in our bodies, it improves mood, decreases level of anxiety, improves immunity, just generally gives us a more positive outlook. So laughter is also an expressive meditation. Again, it breaks up that frozen state, and I've used it again and again with people who've been shut down after major trauma. All of these set the stage and make us so much more receptive to the other approaches. Two others that I write about, one is being in nature, and the other is having animals around us. Now, many of us, I don't know about you, but when I was going through really difficult times in my life, I just naturally, if you will, gravitated toward walking in nature. It happened to be in a city, so I would go to a park to walk in the park. And as soon as I would get in the park, I would feel a bit of the weight lifting off me. And if I spent more time there, I'd feel a little bit more easy. I could feel a little, breathe a little deeper. and My shoulders weren't as tight and my mood lifted. We now know, 60 years after, as a kid, I would do that spontaneously. Now there's lots of research showing that if we spend time in nature, that we do decrease levels of anxiety. We do improve our mood. We do decrease blood pressure. Our immunity may improve. So being in nature clearly is therapeutic for us when we're going through a hard time, and it's it's good for us in any time. And animals... Again, I I remember as a little kid being very, very lonely. And one of the things that made me feel better was taking care of rabbits. Now, nobody showed me any research on this. This is now 70 years later. There is research showing 
that people who spend time with animals, people who've gone through a difficult time are going to do better. One of the most striking studies is a study of people who had heart attacks. They were divided into two groups comparable in every other way, severity of the heart attack, age, general physical status, etc. Those people who had pets at home lived far longer than those people who did not on average. I think it was something like the death rates were three times as great for those people who did not have animals as for those people who did. And even brief periods with animals can be very, very therapeutic. I've done a lot of work after school shootings here in the United States with kids who've been terribly traumatized by the death of other kids in the school and the death of teachers. Many times, the kids don't particularly want to talk to adults, but they do want to talk to animals. They do want to be close to animals. They feel better when they're petting a dog or sidling up to a horse and grooming a horse and maybe getting on a horse. That's what makes them feel better. And these are just laughter, nature, pets. These are just three of the powerful therapeutic approaches that any of us can use. And, and you don't have to own a pet. You can go pay attention to animals in the park. You can visit in a petting zoo. You can uh, go visit a friend or a relative who has a pet. Even those brief visits turn out to be therapeutic. I like how you said there are three simple things that anybody can do. And you also talk about a fourth and a fifth, gratitude and forgiveness. Can you talk about how gratitude and forgiveness help us heal from our own trauma? Sure. Meditation kind of opens the door for gratitude. So if you are in that state of relaxed moment-to-moment awareness, and by meditation, I don't mean anything fancy. That slow, deep, soft belly breathing anybody can do. You don't have to pay any money for it. You don't have to change your religion or go anyplace special or change your clothes. That relaxed, soft belly breathing creates a state in which appreciation of each moment is possible. And that appreciation is a form of gratitude. People who are grateful tend to be less anxious. Their mood is better. They move through difficult situations more easily. And keeping a gratitude journal is another way of kind of making gratitude easier, simply writing down three or five things for which you're grateful. You can do it in the morning, or you can do it in the evening. And there's a lot of research that's showing that writing down those things, it could be something very simple. I'm grateful for my morning coffee. I'm grateful that, that the guy who got me the coffee said hello to me and smiled at me. I'm grateful that I had a comfortable place to sit in the coffee shop. Just those simple things, write them down, that in itself improves mood. That's a kind of counterweight to the negative, distressed thinking we have when we're traumatized. And I've seen many, many people for whom that's been a a kind of lifeline through difficult times. Now, forgiveness is not so easy for many people. Even though all the religions teach us the importance of forgiveness, it's not so easy for us. So it's, it's something that we have to practice, most of us. Some of us are naturally forgiving, and those people are blessed. Most of us have to do some exercises to encourage forgiveness. The one that I teach in the transformation is a pretty simple one. It's imagining somebody sitting across from you whom you've harmed and asking forgiveness from that person, and then imagining somebody 
who's harmed you sitting across from you and forgiving that person. And then imagining you're sitting across from yourself and allowing yourself to forgive yourself and then letting forgiveness spread from there out into the world. Now, that third one, forgiving yourself, is often the hardest for most of us. But all three can be difficult, and it's a matter of practice. And I don't force people, I don't push people to forgive. That's why I teach forgiveness toward the end of the transformation. That's why at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we're working with a whole population that's been traumatized. We do our forgiveness meditation toward the end of our training. It takes some time. We have to come into a more relaxed state. We have to have some sense of appreciation and gratitude, some of the confidence that comes with using some of the other tools, in addition to the ones we've already mentioned, like guided imagery or written exercises or drawings that help us mobilize our imagination. Then forgiveness comes a bit more easily. And if you're working with forgiveness, don't necessarily start with the person you believe has destroyed your life. Start with the guy who cut you off in traffic this morning. Start with something a little easier and work up to the big ones. And it's a process, but it's really important. And what's most important is to bring that forgiveness, that compassion into your life. It's important for you. It's not so important for the other person, really. And if we're able to do this, if we're able to begin to feel more forgiving toward other people as well as ourselves, that helps to balance our whole physiology, gives us a much more hopeful outlook on life, helps us relate to other people, helps us deal with future situations more easily. We're not so easily angered anymore. We have more of a sense of other people's reality, but maybe they weren't really trying to hurt us. Maybe they were going through a hard time. Again, this is a gradual process and be patient with yourself as you embark on it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all that information. For our listeners out there, can you share your favorite self-care technique? Well, it's the soft belly breathing. It's what I teach everywhere. It's what I do every day. It's how I keep myself in balance. It's fundamental to all the other techniques. It's portable. It's easy to do. I do it when I'm standing online in the supermarket and I'm getting impatient. I just do it before every meeting I have with our staff at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. It keeps me balanced and keeps me at ease in the world. One other that I'll mention that we haven't gone into that I do use a lot, that I teach in detail in the transformation, is the use of wise guide imagery. That is relaxing, imagining myself in a safe or comfortable place, and then imagining that a guide comes to me. It could be a person, it could be an animal, a figure from scripture or a book or who knows where. And this may represent my imagination or my intuition or my unconscious. And it's a way of accessing my intuition, my imagination, my unconscious. It's a way of solving problems. And I create this image and I have an imaginary dialogue with the image. And I, and I must do this twice a week when I'm coming up against a situation and I'm not quite sure what to do and I don't have an immediate response and I can't figure it out rationally. I know I need to go to that deeper part of my inner knowing. And the, the whole script for the wise guide imagery is there in the transformation and people can look at me doing it at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine website, cmbm.org. But those two, I would say, are the fundamental. Soft belly breathing, always, always, always. 
wise guide imagery whenever I'm in trouble. But I think the other thing I want to say is that my favorite technique may not be yours. And that's why I've, in the transformation, described 20, 25 different techniques because we're all different and different techniques are going to appeal to different people. And we need to use techniques that are most appealing and most effective for us. So I want to emphasize that as well. What I do in the transformation is encourage you to trust yourself more and more and say, okay, this works for me. This doesn't work. Let me use what works. And don't get preoccupied with what doesn't work. That way lies more trouble. Along those same lines, what is your top advice to a listener who wishes to recover from a traumatic situation? Know that recovery is possible and know the trauma is the soil, it's the ground in which both wisdom and compassion can grow. Know that this is the perennial wisdom of the world's religious and spiritual traditions. We have evidence for this. We have modern scientific research has shown that this is possible. This is what I've discovered in 50 years of working with people who've been traumatized and what I've learned in working with my own trauma. Know that it is possible for you not only to rebalance yourself and recover and become more resilient, but become more joyful and wiser and more compassionate and more fulfilled than you've ever been. And the trauma can be the invitation, as painful as it is, to that process of growth and change. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you and where can they find your new book, The Transformation? The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. You can get it at uh, any independent bookstore. You can buy it on Amazon.com, wherever you'd like to. It's widely available. The Center for Mind-Body Medicine website, cmbm.org, has uh, me describing and showing many of the techniques that are in the transformation, as well as information about programs we're doing all over the country and opportunity to join mind-to-body skills groups where you can learn the techniques with other people and feel the support of other people and learn from somebody whom I've trained who is well-schooled in the, in the techniques and the approach that I describe and that you can read about in the transformation. You can look for me, James Gordon, MD. That's my website. It's also on Instagram, James Gordon, MD, and on Twitter. This is also an invitation to become part of our community at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. We're growing all the time, and we're reaching out and working with many hundreds of thousands of people here in the United States and overseas, giving them the tools, teaching them the techniques, giving them the perspective and the understanding that's there in the transformation. Thank you again so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're welcome. And remember to all of our listeners, we need you to share us on social media. Wherever you downloaded this podcast, rate us as many stars, bullets, or hearts as you feel appropriate and use your words. Tell other people why to listen. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash We will see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central Podcast right from your stage. Email us at show at psychcentral.com for details. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Psych Central is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website 
run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely.